Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. There are some um, notions out there, assumptions out in our society that are just um, really uh, wrong, dead wrong. One of them, for instance, is the idea that there's this perpetual warfare or conflict between science and faith. And uh, we've talked quite a bit about that. There's another similar uh, notion out there, which um, says that Christianity has been itself uh, a supporter of intolerance, that Christianity itself, um, in its very DNA, opposes the idea of religious liberty, freedom of conscience, and Thankfully, there is work being done by uh, scholars to demonstrate that uh, there's a lot of nuance in this area, and we want to take a look at it. With me right now is Timothy Shaw. He's vice president for strategy and international research and the director of South and Southeast Asia Action Team for the Religious Freedom Institute. He's the editor and contributor to Christianity and Freedom, Volume 1, Historical Perspectives, and uh, Dr. Shah is the author or co-author of several other books. You can follow his work at religiousfreedominstitute.org. Tim, good to have you. Thanks. Great to be with you, Al. Let's, let's go right to this uh, question of the, the, the general assumption that Christianity is itself, uh, in, in its very DNA, its, its very nature, opposes religious liberty, uh, liberty of conscience, uh, where does that, where is that first uh, established, or, or excuse me, first articulated? Great question. I mean, we, we certainly see both in uh, academic uh, scholarship and in popular culture this widespread view. I mean, think of the uh, the handmade tale, this notion yes. that uh, religion is inherently repressive and totalitarian, repressive women. But then in, in, in scholarship as well, I did my uh, work as undergraduate and graduate student in history political thought at Harvard uh, in uh, the uh, late 80s, 90s. Uh, one of the great political philosophers then teaching at Harvard was John Rawls. Right. And he yep. articulated really throughout his work, even though he was raised a Christian, uh, a, a real uh, strong view, exactly as you articulated in the opening, that there is a deep-seated conflict, not just between science and faith, uh, but between freedom uh, and faith. Yeah. Uh, and this arises, really, I think, from one main source, and that is what could be called Enlightenment historiography, the, 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 the historical narrative uh, that became prevalent in the European Enlightenment, represented by figures like uh, the Scotsman um, Edward Gibbon, like the Frenchman uh, Voltaire, uh, that uh, the history of Christianity was really essentially nothing but one long series of oppressions, persecutions, uh, abuses, enslavements, etc. And that narrative is really still, I think, the default narrative mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. um, of the vast majority of educated people in the West. You know, it, it surprises me that there wouldn't be a little bit of a reluctance to say that, given that Christianity was itself was the object of some measure of persecution 
for three yes. centuries. Uh, so yes. so the, the story must then also <laughs> include the idea that the persecuted uh, have a reversal of fortune and become the persecutors. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's, that's one uh, standard narrative. But, but another increasingly uh, uh, you know, influential narrative kind of doubles down on the Enlightenment narrative and says, well, you know, not only were Christians the persecutors, but they really weren't even persecuted that much. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> in the, that's in right. the first uh, three centuries, the Candida Moss. Right, uh, at Notre Dame. Influential, yes, yeah. scholar, though I just she was in Notre Dame, she's now moved to, to the U.K. Oh, okay. teaching in Birmingham now. Uh, but in any case, Candida Moss has really, through a number of writings, tried to suggest that uh, the whole story of, of anti-Christian persecution in the Roman Empire was uh, greatly exaggerated. Hmm. Um, so then, so that's a that's a different way of approaching it. Um, if you they remove the idea that there was widespread persecution, then you really can't uh, they can't be held accountable for playing this <laughs> reversal of fortune role. I just they remove the, right. they removed the premise. They've got no excuse. Christians yeah. have no excuse. In other words, yeah. yeah. And actually, I think you pointed out in your uh, somewhere in this first volume that you also have the problem that uh, when Christians are persecuted today, there's uh, a frequently unspoken but felt idea that well they persecuted so much in the past uh, they're kind of getting yes. what they deserve. Yes, exactly. Wow. Well, and and there there is a uh, there is a kind of. Uh, uh, a kind of uh, one might almost say diabolical logic mm-hmm. uh, underlying this kind of view that Christians deserve their persecution, which is that they, they that they have always been highly exclusive, fanatical, uh, dogmatic, intolerant proselytizers, mm. and that whether in history or even today, they really are bringing persecution on themselves by virtue of their uh, exclusivism, their inability to you know, coexist uh, with their fellow citizens in a spirit of, of civic uh, friendship. This is a view even of, of, of historians of late antiquity who say that Christians essentially, because by virtue of their intolerance, brought on uh, the persecution of the tolerant Romans. These yeah. Romans were otherwise very tolerant. And you see this widespread today, and it's interesting just point out one thing about this. This is precisely what was said about the persecution of Jews uh, under Nazi Germany. Uh, when uh, the West was looking on at the, the growing intolerance and horrific attacks on Jews in the 1930s, what was said? It was frequently said that the Jews essentially deserved it, uh, that, that by virtue of their separateness or uh, exclusivism. Mm-hmm. So this is a, an unfortunately sad uh, an all too common way of, uh, of of excusing or justifying or mitigating the evil of religious persecution. So it's it's the notion that if, um, if, if the if the minority faith, the minority community, doesn't uh, embrace the majority worldview uh, and see themselves as somehow organically tied to it, that Therefore, they set themselves outside the protections of the majority. Precisely. Yeah. Exactly right. Wow. Exactly right. Wow. That's, that's wild. 
Um, I guess we do see that. So, I mean, uh, do let me go back, though, if you don't mind, go back to yes. the earliest Christian sources on this. Yes. What yes. do we actually read in even on the pages of the New Testament and in the Apostolic Fathers, what, what they're thinking very differently than we do. We're on one side of the so-called rights revolution. But yes. what were the, how did they conceive of this idea of what we would call religious liberty? Well, you know, remarkably enough, we have uh, early Christian documents uh, that begin to articulate uh, a notion that all people, not just Christians, uh, have the right to religious liberty. Uh, it, it, it sounds absolutely astonishing, because we associate both the ideas of, of universal rights right. and the ideas of religious freedom, again, with the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. This is something that had to happen uh, as a kind of counterforce against the evil of religion and Christianity. Well, uh, inconveniently for this uh, default narrative we've been talking about, uh, the very first person in the history of the human race uh, to use the term religious liberty, that very term uh, in Latin, libertas religionis, uh, was the great Latin church father Tertullian, uh, (laughs) in a very well-known work, in fact his most famous work is the Apology, uh, which if anyone reads Tertullian, they generally read at least uh, segments, sections of the Apology. Uh, and Tertullian literally uses the phrase religious liberty in that work. And, and that's, what, a, and that's course, a phrase he seems to have invented? Uh, it is a phrase that we have every reason to think he literally invented. Wow. Uh, and he uses it in, in roughly the way we mean it. He didn't use it in some peculiar uh, idiosyncratic way. He used it basically to say to the Roman persecutors, and it's, and it's important to note, the apology is addressed not to his fellow Christians, it's addressed to the high officials of Rome who are uh, persecuting the, 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 the Christians, and the apology is an attempt to, to stop Roman persecution. So he is, he's trying to appeal to the Romans, trying to make arguments that they would understand. And essentially what he argues is that you know, you guys are attacking us, persecuting us, trying to stop us, uh, but let me offer you a few reasons why you should stop. Uh, and he makes several arguments. One argument is that uh, this is not going to work. <laughs> you may, you may want to keep persecuting us, but we're just going to keep growing. And that's the context for his famous remark uh, that the uh, blood of Christians is, is the seed of the Church, mm-hmm. which occurs in the Apology, that, you know, you keep killing us, but in fact that's just going to cause us to grow uh, (laughs) more. (laughs) But another argument he makes, and this is where religious liberty comes in, is that uh, religious uh, uh, persecution uh, is a violation of basic human justice. Hmm. Uh, We Romans are understood as free people, Uh, and he he says quite dramatically uh, that uh, persecuting us violates our rights as free human beings. Uh, And he he then, um, in that context, uses the very phrase, uh, religious freedom. Do not uh, add to the evil that you're committing against us, uh, the evil of taking away our religious freedom. He uses that very phrase. 
Um, and then in this context, he makes another argument, which is that religion itself, by its very nature, is something that can't be coerced. Uh, that if if we're trying to do something that is supposed to please the gods, it doesn't make any sense uh, to do that at the point of the spear. Right, uh, if, right. if I'm being, if I'm sacrificing to Jupiter uh, because you are pointing a spear at me, uh, that's not something Jupiter is going to be pleased by. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you know you're, you're, there's no kidding Jupiter uh, in this regard. <laughs> so sacrifice is something that's got to be voluntary. So interestingly, he makes two arguments that religious persecution is, you could say, a crime against dignity, uh, human dignity, uh, and that it's a crime against uh, divinity. Uh, Tim, hold it there. We've got to take a break. We'll come back on the other side. My guest, Dr. Timothy Shaw, Christianity and Freedom, Some Historical Perspectives. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Timothy Shaw, Vice President for Strategy and International Research and the Director of the South and Southeast Asia Action Team for the Religious Freedom Institute. He's an editor and contributor to Christianity and Freedom Volume 1, Historical Perspectives. There's also Christianity and Freedom Volume 2, which he edited uh, uh, looking at contemporary perspectives. And we're focusing in on the roots of religious freedom in early Christian thought. Before the break, we're talking about Tertullian, who actually invents uh, a phrase, uh, libertatum religionis, meaning religious, what we would call religious liberty. And uh, he believes that uh, human beings are owed certain kinds of treatment as a matter of, uh, well, simply because they bear a certain human dignity. And uh, and then and it's also, uh, I guess he implies that it's futile, that the society that persecutes the Christian is actually undermining itself in some respects, since the Church will just continue to grow, uh, mm-hmm. because the blood of the martyrs uh, is the seed mm-hmm. of the Church. Is that, mm-hmm. That's another aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So what's, in, what's so important about Tertullian's argument is that his argument isn't just that you Romans are wrong to persecute us Christians because we Christians have the truth. The argument is that it's always wrong to persecute anybody on grounds of religion. So the the argument is an argument not of consequence, it's not a utilitarian argument, it's not an ad hominem argument that, that again, it's de facto wrong to persecute us, because, again, we have the truth. It's it's rather a principled, universal argument that religious coercion religious persecution is not compatible with both the dignity of human beings uh, and the nature of religion itself. And what what's so striking is that Tertullian gives us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of the very kind of argument uh, that the Catholic Church offers for religious freedom in the great uh, proclamation, uh, the last document of the Second Vatican Council, uh, Dignitas Humanae, the, the Declaration on Religious Liberty, where the Church teaches that religious freedom is rooted in the very dignity of the human person, as that dignity is understood both by human reason and by revelation. So Tertullian gives us an argument really from from human dignity, 
uh, and and an argument that again he he hopes will be persuasive to his non-Christian interlocutors. Remember, oh. he's arguing with Romans who don't share any of his assumptions about the Bible right. or right. about Christ or about Revelation. So he's making an argument. If, if for nothing else, for strategic reasons, that he's hoping will persuade these people who don't believe in Revelation. So he's trying to make an argument that the logic of which doesn't depend on Revelation, but in other works, he, he certainly does make a case for robust understanding of human dignity based on his reading of, for example, Genesis and uh, other parts of the Bible, as you had asked, you had asked about the broader set of writings. But yeah. forgive me, I've, I've gone on and on about Tertullian, no. because uh, yes. it's so important to see that this figure really, you know, contrary to all these narratives we receive, um, really, really is the pioneer in articulating a right to religious freedom, uh, centuries and centuries before it was thought that this was invented by the secular enlightenment. You actually anticipated my next question here, which was, uh, is Tertullian alone in this? He's a pioneer, but is there anybody following? Yes, that's a wonderful question. And, um, uh, we know Tertullian is not at all unusual. Uh, we have a whole series of church fathers. Um, Justin Martyr, uh, of course, before Tertullian in the mid-2nd uh, century, begins to anticipate some of these arguments, Doesn't does is not quite as robust or clear, but we see some hints of the argument against religious persecution on principle. There's a less well-known figure, Anaxagoras of Athens, another apologist, um, but more importantly, following Tertullian, there is a major church father, not a household, uh, you know, church father, you know, even on Catholic radio, uh, <laughs> named Lactantius, yes. uh, who extraordinarily important uh, church uh, father, one of the greatest Latin fathers, a North African like Tertullian, mm-hmm. who uh, is an extraordinarily fascinating figure. This is a person who converts to Christianity. Uh, he then he then finds his way uh, into the court of the emperor Constantine, um, <laughs> because he becomes a tutor to the son of Constantine, Crispus, um, when Constantine was one of the four co-emperors in the Tetrarchy of Diocletian. This is a period when there were four co-emperors, and Constantine succeeds his father Constantius as co-emperor of the extreme. Uh, west end of the empire. He, he's essentially emperor of Gaul and Britain. So anyway, Constantine's looking for a tutor for his son Crispus, and Lactantius uh, is named uh, tutor. And even before Constantine becomes a Christian, by the way, but he he makes this Christian a tutor to his son. And during this period of the early 300s, uh, as you know, Al, and many of our listeners will know. Uh, that that this was the period of the greatest persecution of Christians in the mm-hmm. empire. It was the persecution, the great persecution, which had been ordered by the co-emperor Diocletian uh, in about 302-303. Um, well, Constantine's not a big fan of the persecution, nor was his father, uh, Constantius. Uh, and Lactantius, as a Christian, writes this major work called the Divine Institutes, uh, which in part is an attack uh, on Roman uh, paganism, uh, Roman politics, uh, but also Roman persecution. And it contains a whole chapter 
uh, attacking uh, religious persecution as unjust. So Lactantius, writing about a hundred years after Tertullian, uh, in the very early fourth century, uh, builds very powerfully on these arguments uh, for religious freedom as demanded in principle uh, by justice. Well, it's, it's amazing. This is not well-known at all, at least in popular conversation. Um, so the question then would be, what happens through Christian history that uh, the opponents of uh, Christianity and opponents of the Church can tag Christianity yes. with being uh, an oppressor, an oppressive religion? Yes. Yes, well, and, and, and one does have to acknowledge uh, that there is some truth in the critics yeah. uh, who are you know, who do point out uh, a history of persecution, um, though they often begin history much too much too early. What happens after Lactantius uh, is, as we know, um, Constantine, uh, working with his co-emperor Licinius. Um, proposes something that becomes known as the Edict of Milan in 313. Now, a lot of people think, oh, this is when Constantine imposes Christianity, you know, uh, on the emperor or on the empire, or they think, oh, well, this is when there is sort of toleration of Christians. Actually, no, the, the so-called Edict of Milan, this document, uh, actually institutes religious freedom for the entire empire, hmm. for all people, regardless of their religious beliefs. And in fact, the phrase free, or in Latin, liberam, occurs constantly throughout the Edict of Milan, and it really reflects the language of Tertullian and Lactantius, <laughs> that there should be religious freedom. And it's not a stretch to say this, because, as I just said, Lactantius was in Constantine's right, very right. court. He was part of the conversation. Yeah. He was part of the conversation, and as Lactantius is writing his great works, uh, Constantine probably heard Lactantius actually read his works as he was drafting them, <laughs> uh, because Lactantius made a habit of reading uh, this treatise aloud, the Divine Institutes, as he was composing it. So Constantine probably heard, absorbed these ideas. And up until Constantine's death in 337, there's abundant historical uh, evidence and solid interpretation that Constantine actually practiced a policy of religious freedom. He didn't, he didn't uh, uh, go after uh, pagans. He didn't make paganism illegal. Uh, he allowed people to practice whatever their mm-hmm. conscientious beliefs were. Uh, and we could talk more about it. I won't go into great detail. Yes, we've, about only, it, but, we've only got so, about two minutes left. So, so, so what happens after that? Well, um, several decades later, the successors of Constantine, who, are, who of course are all Christians, do begin uh, to implement policies that are more and more repressive of non-Christians. Okay. Uh, and uh, we, 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 how do we explain this? If Christians had invented these arguments for religious freedom, I think we explain it by the fact that many, many Christian leaders increasingly had a kind of what could be called a sense of eschatological triumphalism. They really thought that uh, this was when the Church was going to be triumphant everywhere, yeah, yeah. this was their moment, and they were impatient. Right. They, they really thought... That the kingdom has come, the... and I'm directing yes, it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we're going to, uh, by hook or by crook, uh, we will make sure that the enemies of Christianity are defeated. 
And even a, as great and mag- magnificent a theologian as St. Augustine, who early in his career is actually a supporter of religious freedom, uh, even in dealing with very violent schismatics, the Donatists in North Africa, even Augustine, who advocated for dealing with the Donatists with mercy and freedom, he shifts very dramatically hmm. in the early uh, 5th century, around 410, uh, really even earlier, 408. He begins to accept the idea that, well, maybe we need to use coercion uh, to unite the Church uh, and uh, to uh, defeat uh, 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 paganism, um, arguably in ways that are inconsistent with his own theology. Yeah. So, Augustine then, who's so influential, passes on a theology of religious coercion, uh, which then really does shape much of the way the Church deals with uh, non-believers. It doesn't completely shape it. There are arguments throughout the Middle Ages, for example, that the rights of Jews should be respected, not to be baptized coercively, Mm -hmm. not to be forced into the Church. But we, we get a history that then becomes very mixed. It's not all persecution. Yeah. Uh, but it's also not the legacy of religious freedom that we 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 should have expected uh, from a church that was influenced by Tertullian and Lactantius. So I'll just say one other thing, that the main church father that's cited by Dignitas Humanae is Lactantius. Okay. Uh, so in 1965, the church is reaching back to this very important uh, patristic uh, legacy. And it was necessary for the church to do that, I guess, huh? Be- to clarify it's, uh, what it taught on religious liberty? Yes, it was necessary. The the, the Church had been constant in teaching that the act of faith must be free. Right. Uh, And in fact, you do see a a constant theme that there is a a kind of natural dignity and a a set of natural rights that are inviolable, including rights of conscience. That teaching really can be found throughout the history of Christianity in Dominican Theologians like De Las Casas, influenced by Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. uh, other uh, important uh, Christian figures teach that non-Christians have the right to religious freedom and shouldn't be coerced into the faith. Um, but the Church also taught other things. Yeah. Uh, it okay. taught, for example, that heretics should uh, be condemned and uh, prevented coercively from teaching okay. uh, falsehood. So it was a mixed legacy, and the Church had to clarify, therefore, what was the essential teaching. Very good. It wasn't a complete innovation. It was a clarification of the past. Precisely. Precisely. Thank, Tim, thank Absolutely. you so much. It's great uh, talking a, with you. We'll talk again. This was marvelous. I, I look forward to it. What a pleasure. Thank you so much, Al. Dr. Timothy Shaw, Christianity and Freedom, Historical Perspectives.